This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Hello everyone and welcome to Chapter Tactics. This is a 40k podcast that focuses on playing Warmer 40k competitively at all levels of the game. And in this particular episode, I believe it'll actually also talk about other competitive games as well. That's because today we're going to be talking about meta-analysis, the anatomy of a meta, and what a meta is. So the term meta is a term that's thrown around a lot in competitive gaming. It's actually been around for a long time. Meta-analysis was developed by an English gamer, a cricket player, uh, also an English professor named Nigel Howard. Nigel Howard literally wrote the book on meta-analysis. Essentially what meta is, is it's a concept or a a theory where we we refer to changes in rules or functions of a game to maximize satisfaction of play. also, it, it, depending on the game you play, it can mean other things too. It can mean what uh, what players are using um, predominantly, like what items, characters, units in 40k's list, armies or factions uh, players are using to ha- achieve the best and quickest, most efficient means to victory. Uh, there's other ways, there's other terms as well for it, but that's the one I want to focus on specifically. That's the one that when people talk specifically about 40k that's the one that they're trying to focus on. And and to be frank and honest, that is the one that's more relevant to today's time, that specific definition of meta. And that's mostly because we have so many players playing competitive games now uh, with especially like esports, magic gathering, and 40k is no exception. We now have stats that track these things. We track what players are using, what factions they're bringing, what top players units that are in their armies, their compositions. And on top of that, there's many regional metas, local metas, global metas, different tournament metas with all the different secondary or mission points, ITC, ETC, chapter approved book. There's a lot to analyze and there's a lot of data to look at. So this episode is going to talk about some common terms that you hear in podcasts and videos and blogs and on uh, Reddit pages everywhere uh, about the meta terms that I want to identify and define for you. So if you're a newer player jumping into competitive 40k, this is going to be a great episode for you. Also, if you're a player coming into this, these terms might appear as a bit of a refresher, but more importantly, we're going to talking we're also going to be talking about metagame analysis specifically in how to research it. Nigel Howard put out nine specific areas of research for metagame analysis. These are all theories 
and arts that you can use personally to help you define the metagame. And we're also going to be talking specifically about the 40k metagame too, uh, what it means to us, what we look at when we're analyzing a meta to write our lists for local events, to write our lists for regional events, and for uh, Brandon and Scary's case for uh, writing lists for international majors that they could potentially win. Uh, I, I'm not going to pretend like I have a lot of knowledge in that expert or in that area. Uh, I myself have never won an international major. However, Scary and Brandon uh, both have plenty of tournament wins between both of them, uh, so they will definitely cover that aspect. There's so there's a, a ton, ton, ton of information to go over here. Uh, I did a lot of research on this. I hopefully I, I can you know teach you all something and come off as a you know coherent as possible uh this is not i'm not a professor uh you know i do not write scientific journals for fun or theories or any of that stuff uh, i am just one lonely rhino um, but i will do my absolute best to present all of this information in a meaningful way for you to all digest and learn from okay oh, a lot there uh, fun also fact, my grandfather was a cricket player very cool <laughs> was he good I have no idea. <laughs> Are you a cricket player? Mm, cricket of the mind, sure. Mm, fair enough. Uh, and then uh, Brandon's grandfather was a baseball player. Not correct. Okay, well, that's fair. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Shot in the dark and missed. Oh, uh, if you haven't gleaned already, I have two amazing co-hosts on tonight. Mr. Brandon Grant and Mr. Scary from Scarcast. Hello, one and all. I had uh, I have been away, but I have returned. He's back. And all it's right, good to be back as well. Perfect. Yeah, you two have been a couple episodes lately. I mean, you've both been so busy with everything. So life is life keeps us busy. Anyways, we're gonna before we go into all this stuff, we're gonna talk about some announcements that I made last week. Uh, there were definitely some big announcements that got people all hyped up. I'm so so thankful for all the new patrons who've hopped on. And if you're wondering maybe why I got a bunch of new patrons, uh. Essentially, this month, I'm going to be giving away a uh, plane ticket or a flight out to one of Frontline Gaming's biggest events. That's going to be for a patron member only, a member of our Patreon. And if you're interested in that, the giveaway uh, to, to win that is uh, patreon.com slash chapter tactics. And the reason why is because I really wanted to give back to the patrons this year uh, in a big way. Uh, you all helped me so much. Uh, you helped me literally pay bills sometimes, make ends meet, sometimes put dinner on the table. I'm not. I'm not poor. I'm not starving. Uh, you, you. You know, I do have an income through Frontline Gaming as well. However, that extra supplemental income helped me so much. It, it helped me uh, move to uh, to Nevada with all of Frontline Gaming. Um, and I, I love this community. I, I love what it's done for me. It's always been a community that I've been really passionate about. And I just, I really want to give back in a big way next year. Um, so the reason why we're doing it in December is last month we didn't have a Patreon giveaway so that I could save a little extra money and put that aside for this big giveaway. And it'll be for anyone anywhere located in the world. If you're located in a very, very specific rural part where the plane ticket will be a lot more expensive, I do have a specific budget allocated. However, that budget should be more than enough to get you going and spend the rest of the way to a trip to the LVO or the Bay Area Open or the SoCal Open. Um, so it's it's something that I, I'm really excited to move forward with. And, uh, you know, I really, well, like I said, I'm really appreciative. And I really want to give back to you all um, who've been supporting me. This, and that's also going to be 
um, one year since I started the Patreon, right? I started it at the beginning of this year, and the Patreon give will be announced at the end of the year. So it's, it's something I'm really excited about. Also, just like last year, for Triple X Heffelmas, which is our Christmas giveaway, I'm going to be giving away two, we are going to be giving away two painted character models. That'll be a, a model painted by our Frontline Gaming Paid Studio that you get to choose. So it'll be a character model that you get to choose. Last year, our two winners had an absolute blast. We had an Eldrad painted beautifully and also an Ultramarines Ancient Standard Bear as well. Uh, they were very beautiful. And this year, the way you win that is at the end of the year, towards our Christmas episode, I'm going to pre-record it and probably take the last couple of weekends of December off or the last couple of weeks off. So you might not see Chapter Tactics episodes, but I will release a special Christmas episode uh, and in that episode, just all you have to do is write in the comments saying you want something for Triple X Heffelmas from Val Heffelfinger or from Petey Pop or whoever. Just a little something, something nice. It's all you have to do is comment uh, on YouTube, on Frontline Gaming, on any of the podcast comment sections, wherever, wherever you want to com- wherever you want to comment on it, on one of the videos, and then just say you want something, and then I will pick one random person out of there. You do not have to be subscribed to Patreon. You just have to comment, and if you want, you can like too as well if you're on YouTube, and I'll pick one of you, and uh, I'll reach out to you, and we'll get that going. The second way to win a model is to email me at FrontlineGamingPDPAB, and that's P-E-T-E-Y-P-A-B, at gmail.com, and just email me a story of how competitive 40k helped you, or what competitive 40k means to you. Uh, I've already had a lot of really good stories, um, though not as many as I have patrons. So you, if you do email me, you do have really good chances still. Uh, and it's just really nice to see the stories that people have. Uh, a lot of it is camaraderie. A lot of people got into competitive 40k with friends. They went to tournaments. They they felt uneasy or, uh, you know, like they didn't want to go to tournaments. And then they went to a tournament and they had a blast with their friends and they got super into it. And now, you know, they have a bunch of models and, and they're just really into it they're looking to go to the lvo or other big events adepticon nova it's just so cool to hear all of your origins and backstories and read all of them um it it really really makes me feel like i'm doing something i'm giving something back to the community just talking about competitive 40k and uh we've come a long way uh scary and brandon i'm sure you can remember a time when um there was when competitive 40k was something that you you know got laughed at like consistently, right? You couldn't go on to Daka Daka without saying like, "Oh, competitive 40k is stupid." Like that's a terrible idea. Uh, now it's it's becoming much more legitimate, and uh, a lot of that is in part to you know community leaders taking the time to produce content for competitive 40k, and also TOs just doing a really great job of running events and running tournaments. So shoot me those stories once again. The email is frontlinegamingpdpob at gmail dot com. Alright, also if you want to sign up for Patreon giveaways and support the podcast, patreon.com slash chapter tactics. Alright. Scary Branded, anything you want to add to all of that? I'm really excited. Hopefully one of you guys can come out and we can meet you guys at one of these big events. It'd be fantastic. It'd be absolutely great. And, and then I'll see if in. I can get... <laughs> Alright, so let's go ahead and dive into it. Uh, before we do, I wanted to talk about two things. Chapter approved and a special event that happened this weekend. Um, first off, chapter approved. Brandon, Scary, I've talked a lot. I've spent the last five minutes talking. I need to. I think the world needs to know 
what you what your thoughts are on chapter approved uh, brandon you're an amazing astro militarum player scar you're an amazing dark eldar player how has chapter approved affected you your faction and the army list you might be taking to Delvio. we'll start with scary so chapter approved definitely hit uh dark eldar and the fields badsies aka the ravager badsies um it honestly a lot of the stuff didn't get touched a lot of stuff did go down things like mandrakes and all the weird stuff that I like using uh, saves me points. Uh, right now, as a Dark Eldar player, I'm having an interesting time adapting to the meta. The meta right now is at a place where everything is so dangerous that you just put anything on the table that has Dark Eldar stats and it dies. So I have to... I'm currently... Um, or you go Coven and then you give up every ITC point in existence, uh, secondary point. So I'm, I'm trying to find a balance between uh, durability and toughness, but also uh, being able to do damage at this, at not necessarily the same pace as some of the other armies out there, but in order to do consistent damage throughout the whole game. And that's probably the hardest thing is uh, Marines just hit you like a freight train. And then you, if you lose too much hitting power mid to late game, it's hard to come back to it. So as an Archon myself, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, either complete MSU and committing to that so that if you shoot at a five-man unit, it dies and I don't care, or uh, going for full Coven to just make things very durable. But because there are so many options and I really enjoy all of them, I'm having a hard time picking something. However, I am starting to lean away from my Ravagers, and that's the first time that's happened in, I want to say, five years. So yeah, that's definitely been an interesting sort of like mental thing that I've been going through lately. Yeah, Ravagers have been a mainstay <clears throat> in Dark Eldar armies for, for a long time. Yeah, so right now I've been going more for Razor Wings and uh, Void Ravens using Test of Skill Witch Cult, which allows them to get plus one to wound against vehicles and monsters with ten or more wounds. Um, and that has really helped uh, against armor, knights, you know, uh, dr you know, big, big uh, dreadnoughts with more than 10 wounds or uh, repulsors or flyers, things like that. However, Flayed Skull seems to be the thing that's winning the battle in the, of the Cabals against Cabala the um, Blackheart. So the last couple of games I've played have been with no Vect. No, no, uh, no Cabal of Blackheart and just really taking advantage of that ignore cover and very fast movement from uh, Flayed Skull, Venoms, and, and Planes, too. Right on. And uh, Brandon, same question. Uh, what are you looking at for Astromel Terum? Are you looking to switch the sisters? Uh, what, what do you think? So, on the second question first, not all the sisters' models are out yet. So I don't plan on running the metal models, particularly because going forward, you're going to have to mount everyone on the new bases anyway. So it's going to be a while before I have sisters that are at least tabletop standard ready to be on the table. And it's going to take a while before I polish them enough to really bring them to events. So in the near term, definitely guard. And uh, to the first part of the question, chapter approved was not totally unkind to guard. Really... It was kind of strange, actually. It definitely felt like Chapter Approved was behind the meta by six months. Like, uh, the units that increased in cost were uniformly uh, units that dealt with infantry. So Wyverns, Punisher Cannons, and Mortars all went up in cost. And I thought all three of those were probably right where they needed to be already. 
So it was weird to see them increase in cost. Otherwise, uh, the nerf to Ogrins was the weirdest nerf because I have yet to see Ogrins on a table in 8th edition. In 7th or even 6th edition, I have not seen the models on a table in a competitive game. So it's really weird that they adjusted them to be more expensive. And then the rest of the changes were like, okay, no one's taking Scions. It makes sense to make them 7 just because... They're a deep striking model that rapid fire is at nine inches, so they never rapid fire when they deep strike with their normal weapons, which is already kind of weird. So they made the troops cheaper and the officer cheaper, which I totally support. People were not taking scions before. I think you'll see a few of them now and then now. Uh, Ratwings are still bad. Crusaders are still bad. And then Astropaths went to 15 points. I have no idea why. They were already fine exactly where they were, but Sure. Uh, They're not a unit that you can really take advantage of, because again, they're a single model. You can only take three of them. So at most, you saved like, what is that, 30 points or so in your list from that one change, if you were spamming Astropaths, which no one would. So it's not really a game-breaking change. But it was just, okay, there were a few units that were underperforming, like Layman Russ, that got a points reduction and some heavy weapon options. Overall, chapter-approved regard was like, yeah, this all makes sense. And then Ogrins, but why? Yeah, it, it did seem a little weird. Um, m- moving beyond that, uh, Brandon, are you going to stick with the same guard list you've been running for like, for the LVO for existence, or are you still kind of thinking about what you're going to bring? Um, well, I actually had a GT this weekend, and it was a great um, laboratory for testing out lists and preparation for LVO. And I was trying out all kinds of new concepts building on what I'd learned at SoCal. And uh, some stuff worked. Some stuff probably could do a little bit better. But the list is getting very close to what I'm going to bring to LVO. So I don't see anything too drastic. Like, oh, now I'm suddenly 100% Val Howland. No, that's not... I don't, I don't see anything like that coming. So the the same things that I'm trying to plan around in the meta, which we're going to cover are still the same things that I'm trying to plan around at SoCal and my event this weekend at Dicehammer. So the list shouldn't be changing drastically because I'm still trying to plan around those same things. Okay, okay, great. All right, and then um, finally, are either of you taking any changes or making any changes to deal with Space Marines? So uh, when Space Marines did start... Uh, coming out the the main change that i started doing is adding a lot more sort of anti-tank weaponry so i switched from razorwing jet fighters to void raven bombers and i've really enjoyed that another thing was adding in drazar the master of blades uh with the release of psychic awakening uh phoenix rising into my list and with chapter approved he went down in points and he he kills primaris marines dead so i really like having him in my list and that's okay. really the main change that I've had so far. That and ignore cover, because every space marine in existence is in cover, apparently. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, exactly what I was planning around, which is extremely resilient uh, vehicles, extremely resilient infantry, and all of them are in cover. Um, and what I've realized after SoCal is that marines do not care about Katachan melee. Um, they are just going to beat up your Katachan with five scouts now. It's just not even close. Like, yeah. just basic Marines 
beat up melee specialist guardsman. No contest. So it's like, okay, my previous list relied on an overwhelming infantry wave assault that would need to be dealt with by the opposing force and build it to be resilient while you're at it. So the enemy focuses all their attention on the midfield units like Volgrins, infantry squads, and chimeras, because if they don't, they get overwhelmed. In the meantime, your fire support sits in the back and starts chewing away at their tough stuff so that your infantry can carry the day. But with Marines, they don't really care about infantry, and most of them can just thunderfire cannon slow Bulgrins. Um, so they just pick off your fire support anyway and pick up the guardsmen at their leisure because I don't know if anyone's noticed, but the firepower level from Space Marines, if you're relying on armor saves, is insane. And if you only have a five-up armor save, you pretty much don't have an armor save versus Marines. Yeah. yeah. So it's totally changed the list because I have to bring guardsmen to deal with Marines anyway, as a screen. But in the Marine matchup, the Guardsmen don't punch anyone because they can't actually cross the table in most games to get to the Marines without being gunned down. So they just literally zone out the Marines from parts of the table for deep striking purposes or holding objectives. But then it means that my fire support options are vulnerable because that's literally the only thing the Marines actually care about is my artillery and tanks. So then I've focused on Tanks that can outflank with Talarn, or move and shoot with Talarn, or just indirect fire with Basilisks, because anything else in a direct head-to-head fight has no chance against Marines. Hmm. Yeah, it's definitely an issue right now, and I actually think that's a great segue to into our main topic. Um, actually, hold on real quick. Quick shout-out. The Atlanta Open today, or the Atlanta Open this weekend, if you're unaware, the pro tabletop event that uh, had a $5,000 grand prize to the winner went off and i have to give them kudos and respect uh their stream was very well done and it was a step in the right direction to competitive streaming uh so there were also some amazing matchups there there one of the semifinal games was sean naden versus nick Nadavati. that's that's like grade a amazing competitive drama and gameplay like that's just crazy so uh, check that out. I highly recommend it if you're interested in learning about 40k to check out their day three, their finals, top eight. Uh, there were a lot of great games played and uh, a lot of good uh, gameplay. So, all right. So let's go ahead and uh, jump right into this. So we're, we're going to be talking about uh, metagame theory. Uh, and what metagame theory was basically developed around was the idea that in strategic games and war, players and opponents and people will try to reach their objectives and goals through the best, most efficient options available to them. Uh, and Nigel Howard, with the person who developed metagame theory, knew this. Knew, knew that it was human nature to gravitate towards the best things, the things that made them win, right? And, and, and that's just competition. And, and a lot of that is why we like games so much. Uh, we, we, you know... Uh, where if you like these kind of games, you like the competitive spirit, you're already going to analyze basic things like are space Marines really good or are, is this army or faction or unit or, you know, character common? Like, is this, is this going to give me the best chance to success? And this leads to things like arms races. It leads to a metagame analysis, which we'll talk about now. Uh, it leads to a player's, banding together and forming you know clubs or leagues organizations 
and and it just in general creates uh, a kind of culture and that's what the meta is that's the meta game that that is ultimately what your meta is and so going into metagame analysis and why that's important actually uh bef before we do that let's talk about some terms right so we have this is what the metagame is so now as it pertains to 40k there is a 40k metagame and in that 40k metagame there are multiple terminologies multiple definitions that i kind of want to go over before we jump into metagame analysis, because I feel like it'll really help, uh, you know, some of our listeners, you know, relate to some of the concepts that Nigel Howard talks about. So the first is, is a uh, simple, what a metagame is. Are you dealing with a local metagame, which is, uh, we define local as a tournament that you can drive to maybe an hour or two. You have a, a local scene, 30, 40 players. RTTs are very commonly a local metagame. And it's important to look at local metagames for your own benefit in terms of practice. If you really aspire to reach the big super majors and international tournaments and to do well at those. Uh, but for the most part, local metagames tend to be a lot more diverse because you have smaller pools. You have smaller ponds of players. Uh, and so you get thing, weird things like Dark Angels, Index Dark Angels winning an RTT. Right or or some other off brand off faction thing unit or faction that is not dominant in an international meta or the global meta, uh, which is the overall meta of in this case competitive 40k, and what's good and what isn't good, and then we'll break that down as well. Um, but to focus more on the local meta, it's sometimes it's important to to. Uh, take the local meta what you see with a grain of salt uh, oftentimes i see online uh, players they talk about uh, how in their local meta or, or orcs are doing really well so they relate that to winning they equate that to winning and doing well at tournaments and when they go to a different meta a different local meta or a regional meta they won't do as well because all they have all they equate winning to is that that faction that just dominated their local meta and so moving on to a regional meta, you have a, a region, usually Southern California, Australia's regional meta, you have East Coast, a, these larger regions where these groups of people get together, travel hours and hours and hours to get to community hubs or tournaments and compete there. And that's we that's a common thing that we talk about here on Chapter Tactics, because regional metas are where you start to get, see some of the best players play, and also where you get to see metagame trains that are relevant to the international meta. And so the international meta would normally in a game be what everyone runs, right? It's it's the, the big daddy of them all, the one that everyone wants to do, the, the absolute best factions, absolute best players, the absolute best choices. Uh, and the reason why it's the absolute best is because theoretically with an international meta, uh, you have a lar the largest pool possible, which is the entire world. Uh, and theoretically, when you have the largest pool possible, you should uh, you should already have the best combinations and the best choices rise to the top because you have so many players analyzing a meta. This can be skewed a little. Like, for example, Age of Sigmar is a much smaller game than competitive 40k. And so it, it its international meta isn't as developed uh, so a player can go into an Age of Sigmar tournament, like Reese, for example, he talks about this on Signals all the time, uh, and with a, an obscure army and do well, 
because the International Age of Sigmar meta isn't as large as something like Magic the Gathering or or League of Legends, right? These massive global games with, with tons and millions and millions of players all playing competitively. So with 40k, there's really three big international metas that you should focus on. There's the ITC, which is the Independent Tournament Circuit, and the ITC meta. And that's the meta that revolves around the ITC missions. Uh, and it is more US-based, but there there is a lot of international ITC tournaments as well, especially now that there's more and more growing. Uh, there is the... Uh, and then within that, there's also uh, sub-metas or... or um, I don't even want to say because they're, they're their own separate things. Like, for example, Nova, the Nova mission format isn't as large as the ITC format, but it is still a mission format. It is still a specific meta as well. Um, so I don't want to lump that into the ITC format, but I don't want to call it like an international format either because it, it isn't as widely used. Um, the second one is the chapter approved book missions meta, the international meta that you see a lot of people use. Uh, and that's the one that... That's the one that primarily people focus on uh, with, uh, with, like, in the casual setting, right? So that's one that if you were to travel to your friend's house in Sweden and they were to play that, it would translate to a similar, you know, thing in, uh, you lived in, like, Alabama or whatever, right? Or, or whatever, right? Because the, the GW puts out these missions for everyone to have, and they're all the same. Right. And then finally, the last one is, is a one that I've been trying to think of a, or to coin a term for, and that's the, the comp meta or the, uh, like the true casual meta, right? And so this is a different thing than ITC or book mission meta. And this is the meta that's, I think, the most common. Uh, and it's a meta, it's a type of metagame analysis that, that uh, Nigel Howard talks about. And that's the idea of comping or house rules or, uh, playing the game to maximize fun, but maybe not maximize competitiveness. And so this could be something like an example of power playing with power level points, which I, I'm not saying is the most common way to play. That's by far not the case. Most people play with points, um, but I'm using power level as just an example. Uh, but it's specifically, it just revolves around comping the game somehow. Uh, and so that meta is not what I'm going to focus on because it's very unpredictable, but I, I just want to point it out because it is technically there. All right. Let's talk about some, some now that we've talked about wide range meta terminology, Brandon and Skari, what are some uh, specific meta terms that you hear talk about uh, in terms of army lists or specific factors? Well, if I'm consulting your notes here, then um, I'll, t I'll cover Gatekeeper. So if you're trying to build a list that's going to win an event, there are lists that you're going to face at the top the very best of the best and you might even think of a specific person so if you were thinking of the atlanta open you'd think richard siegler is there i need to figure out how to beat tau because i might expect to see them at the top table but a gatekeeper list is that weird oddball list that's never going to win the whole event but you might meet on the way there the one that's going to go four and one or five and one um, but probably isn't going to win the whole thing but also is not the same as the kind of list that you expect to possibly win the event. So in the past, for example, you might think of a gatekeeper list as a five-knight list. Um, but you wouldn't expect five knights to win most of the time. 
So, or let's say a, a nine flyer list. I mean, maybe that's not gatekeeper anymore that could win an event. But my point is um, whatever the meta happens to be where you're thinking, okay, these are the, the greatest lists that I need to plan around. Gatekeepers are, well, I'm, I might still meet this. I need to plan for this. I think gatekeepers are exactly what you said. Um, and it's important if you want to be at the top of the current meta to understand that these gatekeepers move and flow, you know, so they sort of cycle through. And if you want to do well at a, at a like international competitive level, you know, um, those gatekeepers tend to be gatekeepers at larger events, but tend to sometimes dominate local metas. So, you know, it'd be, it'd be a good idea if you want to, if you have a BCP subscription or, you know, you're, you're in, uh, in like, uh, in the, the meta know-how, or you, you kind of follow the meta, it allows you to, to kind of figure out what sort of list building stuff you might need to build into your list. You might have a relic or a piece of war gear or a unit that's very specifically good against a specific gatekeeper list and you have to prepare for them because if you don't you know odds are if you're playing six rounds or whatever at a big event you run into that gatekeeper as on your way to the top and they're probably not going to win the event but if you don't have a tool for it you know um uh you you you'll probably get you know sideswiped by it yeah i, I yeah i agree and in that that's a perfect example of uh taking regional metas or local metas and results from that, from those metas, and applying them to an international meta for you, for you to to perform better with. Now, I, I want to talk about gatekeeper lists because that's a great term. It's a term that we often use. And I want to talk about why gatekeeper lists are gatekeeper lists. Uh, and one term that I I was kind of... Uh, we, I talked about another episode of Chapter Tactics, and I didn't quite explain it correctly. And that's the idea of a skew list or skew. Now, as I understand it, a skew list or a skew gatekeeper list is a list that specifically gears towards uh, hyper hyper pushing one strategy. Um, so, for example, a spam or in, in spam's case, if you don't know what spamming a unit is, it's running a lot of a specific unit or a lot of a specific strategy so much to the point that uh, it, it's to the extreme, right? And so to use an example, if you were to bring... Uh, make an entire army composition of one unit that was weak to guardsmen, right? So you, your entire army is weak to guardsmen, you, but you you definitely destroyed all other units or all other armies. You would do fine until you, you know, went up to a list with a bunch of guardsmen, and then they would kill you, your list. You would lose. And that, that's so you're skewing the results in your favor to, to uh, perform better, right? So you, you're trying to dodge the guard matchup and go straight for the the free wins potentially um and so gatekeeperless can be skewless they're they're actually commonly are skewless uh and a gatekeeperless can evolve from a skewless a skewless can evolve from being a gatekeeperless by skewing to a, the majority of the meta right and and one of the things that's important is Depending on what meta you play in, skewed lists could be more popular, less popular. Mm -hmm. You know, a good example is the ETC, the European Team Championship uh, format, or you know, even ATC style, which uses ITC rules. But it, it 
a lot of the times you see skewed lists because what a skewed list will do is it'll have very good matchups and we'll be able to deal with uh, specific armies well. Like, I'm going to bring an army with 40 last cannons, you know, or whatever. And you, if you go up against a tank army, you're highly likely to just wipe that tank army off the board. However, you run against an army that has 300 grots in it, 40 last cannons are going to do diddly squat for you. Um, so in that sense, you have really bad matchups as well. Mm-hmm. And so you see these a lot in team environments where you can try and avoid the worst matchups for your skewed list while trying to shoehorn them into the matchup that they are really good at. Yeah. And we actually have a couple really good episodes on team terms. I recommend going to frontlinegaming.org and looking at the full archive of episodes if you're interested in that specific format. Um, but but yeah, great great example. And uh, the reason why I wanted to bring up skew lists is because it is something that is very common in competitive games. Uh, there is a strategy specifically that I learned in Magic the Gathering, whereas it, it's better to play a skew deck that wins 70 to 80% of the games, but will always lose to specific, uh, specific key decks than to build a jack-of-all-trades deck that wins 50% of the time, but against every deck. And the reason why is you there's something called grinding in Magic the Gathering, which also you see in 40k, and that's the idea of just going to as many tournaments as possible. Um, and if you think of each tournament as a dice roll, right, uh, or each match in a tournament as a die roll, you if you bring the jack-of-all-trades deck and you play in 100 tournament games, you're going to go 50-50 in those games, right? So you're going to lose, you're, you're going to win and lose uh, 50-50 of the time, um, which will lessen your odds of going well at a tournament and going nine and zero or ten and zero because you're going to go four and four, three and five, you know, five and three sometimes, and that's not going to get you the results that you need to to place or top eight. But if you go, uh, if you get your seventy percent skew deck, you all of a sudden one tournament you're going to go zero and nine, zero and ten. You're going to run into your bad matchup, but it's going to eventually go in favor to you and you're going to have an extreme lucky tournament where you go 10 and 0 12 and 0 with your skew deck because you've been playing the odds so many times right so it's kind of shaping the odds in a way so that you you hit your one big your one big lucky tournament and then you use that to ride into a win and you do that so that would be one reason to run a skew list uh, in general, skew lists that are really good and that have a high win percentage against the majority of a meta are bad and not good for the overall health of a competitive game. Um, so if you do see a lot of them and they are no longer gatekeeper lists, but they're lists that are will legitimately win large international tournaments, that's the sign of an unhealthy game. So, uh, all right, uh, let's talk about netlisting now. Netlisting is something that, that it's a term that you you see all the time. And essentially, there's two definitions to a netlist. There's a one which is kind of like a derogatory negative connotation term, which is basically you your list is unimaginative. It, it, it is the same list that everyone else is running. Uh, it's a list that you literally pulled off the internet and are currently running. And it, it, that is a one term for a netlist or one definition of a netlist. The second, and I think the more realistic definition of a netlist is components of a common faction uh and common being maybe with uh 20 to 30 percent play rate maybe 15 percent 
Um, and, and that's dependent on on how people perceive that faction's strength. Um, but you take a common faction and you use the common core units in that faction, and that's what you would consider a net list. So it's really less of a net list and more of just the obvious good choices, right? So I'm going to use Space Marines in 8th edition as an example. Every Space Marine player is taking three Eliminators. Not every Space Marine player, but it feels like every Space Marine player's net list is three Eliminators, three Thunderfire Cannons, your uh, basic captain, maybe a Smash captain, uh, Centurions, and, and then you sprinkle in whatever you want to flavor, depending on your chapter, right? But in general, those are very common units, in Space Marine armies right now. And so it could very easily, you could look at a Space Marine list that has those elements and go, oh, that's a net list. That's actually false. The The way I like to think of the term net list is simply, if someone says they are running a net list, they're telling me, oh, they're running some of the same common units in their list that you see specifically for that faction. If they're orcs, they're running Big Macs with shock. Well, not anymore, because Big Macs got killed by chapter approved or the Legends rule. But if they were running orcs three months ago, it'd be Big Macs, it'd be the uh, the mech guns, it'd be Ludas, you know, it'd be like the, the common stuff that you see in orc lists. Maybe like six months ago, actually. That was three months ago, Space Marines were around. Uh, so, anyways, so th that's what I see. And so when I go into a game and with something uh, that I deem a net list, I, I know what I'm getting out of those units, so that lets me put more focus and attention on the other units that aren't those netlist units or aren't those commonly seen units. Uh, and that, that is that is a pitfall that you can fall into too. It's very I've seen a lot of players, they look at a list and they go, oh, that's just a netlist. I know what this does. And then they don't see the weird unit that they end up losing to. And that, that's actually where really good players like Skari um, and Brandon kind of thrive in those those gray areas where they bring cool things, specifically Skari, um, and, and they bring things that their opponent maybe don't know about or isn't familiar with tackling, uh, and they take full advantage of that. Actually, you'll see, um, so netlisting definitely is taken negatively, I find, from, in a lot of, like, local communities, you know, if you're somebody who really, and, you know, you're listening to this in your radio, in the car, on your in your commute or whatnot, and you're thinking, you know what, I know someone who loves to find the newest, bestest thing, and they literally just copy-paste, you know, the the next thing that somebody like, a, you know, Sean Naden is using, or Nick Nadavanti, or, or something, Richard Siegler, of course, with his towel, and, you know, they've basically copy-pasted it. And I'll tell you right now, you know, I uh, one of the things that I find is that's great and all. Like when I when I you know um, when I talk to coaching clients and they want to build like a specific list, the first thing we usually go for is like you take a net list more of a more of like a template, and you in terms of the meta that'll give you a good gauge of good units and whatnot. But the thing is, Richard Siegler you know, or John Lennon or Nick Nanavati have been playing these lists with a lot more dedication than any sort of local player just taking a net list. And they've tweaked this list that has, it works in the meta to sort of suit their own personal play style. You know, like Brandon, you're exactly the same. Like you take a list and you make it your own. And that's the key is to find good units, things that are good in the meta, maybe take a net list as a template and then build it into something that is your lictor shame like the only reason something becomes a netlist is because a top player makes it a netlist 
by yeah. showing that it will do well. And yeah, that's and how it becomes in that list. So if you want to make random Ravener list, you know, or Lictor list, a net list, you know, do it and win with it and show that it can be done. And I guess to the thing I'll play, add. maybe to users or to listeners who maybe haven't weren't around in the sixth edition, uh, what Lictor Shame or what Scar is referring to is there's a really really good player uh, named Sean Naden who won the Las Vegas Open with uh, essentially an off meta weird list using Lictors. It was a tiered list uh, at the time. The meta was around revolving around Eldar, Wave Serpent, Spam, uh, Chaos Demon allies with Tyranid Hive Tyrant allies you know, space centurion death stars. Uh, and so Sean Naden showed up with this uh, list that he deemed Lictor shame and, and beat everyone won the, you know, the Las Vegas open one of the biggest single tournaments in the, in the country. So it, you know, that's the perfect example of someone going against the meta, going against the grain and doing well. And what Skari is talking about, which I think is brilliant is that a lot of lists like that do become net lists. The reason why Sean's list didn't become a net list, although people tried, uh, was because he specifically built that list to beat and counter, which is the term we're going to talk about, um, the, the Las Vegas open meta. He specifically went in there, used a lot of these basic meta analysis, meta theory concepts, went into that tournament and won with a list that no one had ever seen before and and became really famous for it, really 40k famous for it. And so uh, a lot of people tried copying that list afterwards. A lot of people tried netlisting that list, and they just couldn't do it. They couldn't produce the same results, and that's because it wasn't a list designed to win a bunch of tournaments. It was a super skew list that was designed specifically to beat these same lists that everyone was running, right, at this one particular tournament. So it was just a brilliant example of someone, you know, using meta-analysis to, to win at the right time perfectly. A really intelligent, good player. Uh, all right, so uh, Brandon, I, I was going to talk about this, but I would love it if you talked about this. Uh, why don't you talk about counters and checks uh, when when looking at matchups for meta-analysis? Well, I can cover counters, but you might be better off for checks. Okay. So counters would be, okay, this, this uh, unit or this army is getting very common in the top tables or just in my local meta. I need to know how to beat it. So a counter would be something like, oh, my opponent's bringing lots of termagants. I'm going to bring lots of flamers so that they can't actually charge me anymore or something like that. So I'm going to go do some math hammer and calculate if I throw this unit at your unit, I will win because this unit is more efficient into your unit than your unit into mine. So counters might include things like... Um, the old Eldar lists that would stack negative to hit modifiers. That was a great counter for BS4 and 5 armies, because if you're BS5 or 4 and you're hitting at minus 2, you're hitting on 6s or not at all. So if you wanted to counter an army of BS4, take Eldar Flyer Spam with a Latok. Um, so, yeah, counters is just, I want to beat this unit, so I will bring that unit. Yeah, and so so counters and checks is something that you see a lot in in games like chess or very analytical games. I think it actually translates well to forty k. And so uh, Brandon's right. Counter is simply this unit beats this unit, hands down. Uh, a check is something a little different. It's something. Uh, it's almost like a soft counter or or uh, a mild counter, right? And so what a check is 
is a counter would be this unit beats this unit. A check would be I present this unit and I my opponent gains nothing from their unit and I gain nothing from their unit. And so what that does is you can stop your opponent's momentum. You can maybe give your opponent the initiative so that they that might give your opponent the initiative so that they might have to do something and alter the game state to win, giving you an advantage. So and generally checks are easier to shoot for then counters right a counter is is this big play this big i win and chess it's the it's the i take your queen and win the game a check is a lot more subtle a check is something that takes little effort it's a pawn a move 20 moves ahead to uh stop your opponent's overall plan right and so it's very important and this also is something beyond just the micro of a game it's something that applies to metagame analysis there are checks and counters to specific lists space marines all check each other in the current 40k meta what that means is that in general the space marine factions all perform about 50 50 to each other right and so you can count on space marines checking each other meaning that one space marine list isn't going to run away with with the meta and, and go you know, have an 80% win rate, right? Or whatever, right? So there's different checks there. And checks are important for a game um, so that you don't rock, paper, scissors too much or so that specific lists don't do well, right? Counters are this list beats this list, right? So if you have a, a specific list, like if you had a list that countered Space Marine lists, just all Space Marine lists, like what kind of Necrons were doing before Iron Hands, uh, that that means that that list just absolutely beats this list, and that can skew it the results in another favor that might be favorable. Um, so if, for example, if you were talking about game design, if you had an army list or if you had a, a faction that was overperforming by a large margin, you would want a counter to them because you would want them to be shut down to lower that win percentage. But if they weren't winning so much, but they, they were maybe become a little more dominant, you'd want multiple checks for them. Right, so, you, so that they they're not completely bl- blown out and removed from obscurity, but so that they're checked. They're they're they still maintain maybe their win their win percentage, their positive win percentage, or whatever. Right, so that's the the idea of checks and counters. Uh, and then finally, um, to round it all up, the last term I want to talk about was the mirror. So what the mirror is is when you're talking about metagame analysis, you and you ask. Well, how do they how do they do in the mirror? How do Space Marines do in the mirror? How do Tyranids do in the mirror? And that's essentially the mirror match is how does this faction perform against itself? And you ultimately get this with with any competitive game when you have a meta game, right? Because if players are going to naturally gravitate towards the most powerful units and the most powerful strategies, eventually those most powerful strategies are going to start playing each other. And so, looking at the mirror match or looking at how uh, army lists and, and units interact with each other in the mirror is also very important, right? So if you know that your that space marine lists in the mirror are checking each other, then you might have a chance to, or you might know that a space marine list is, is for sure going to be 50% going to be in every stage of a tournament, round one through six, because they're always checking each other. However, if one space marine list counters another space marine list, it's going to skew in favor of the space marine that counters it, right? So, for example, if a lot of players are taking white scars, and a lot of players are taking iron hands, because white scars theoretically, in general, do counter iron hands, uh, the specific three repulsor iron hands list will get more specific. You would see white scars start to favor that matchup when you're looking at the mirror match between space marines. And then there's a whole lot more there. I, I 
oversimplified the crap out of it. Uh, but these are these are terms that we're probably going to be going back to later on in the podcast. So if you're unfamiliar with them, that's why I'm t- we're talking about them. Okay, Bob. Well, that was a lot of definitions, but I it was think we got that out of the way. How can we use this information to play better games of 40k? So, uh, essentially, uh, what you what you do with this is is you take these terms and you start setting in place motions to analyze a metagame. So there's different ways to analyze a metagame, different ways to go about uh, looking at the metagame to maximize your efficiency or maximize the results and the data that you see. The first is the options analysis method. Um, And what essentially this is, is you set up uh, actors, uh, scenarios, and and you talk possibly even independent game theory, and you... Uh, use all of the options available to a game and you analyze what's what's best for the game. This is actually the easiest, most instinctual method that all players use. And it's uh, essentially, you look at all the factors uh, and then all the options, and then you analyze how, how uh, they interact with each other independent of game theory. So independent of how the game theoretically plays itself. Right? And so... Uh, Normally, what that would mean, and like if rock paper scissors, if you wanted to do an options analysis method of of rock paper scissors, you wouldn't look at this pure game theory, which is that you always have a one third chance to win and one third chance to lose. You would instead look at psycho psychological factors, like rock is more commonly used than paper and scissors. Potentially, I don't know for sure. I'm not I'm not a rock paper scissors expert. I'm just using that as an example because it's such a simple game. Uh, so you would look at the options that players have, and then you'd look at actors, specific things that uh, that affect those options, right? Why do people pick rock? Why do pick, people pick paper? Why do people pick scissors? And use that analysis to determine what is best if you go rock all the time, if you go paper all the time, if you go scissors all the time, right? So that that's what the options analysis meta is, or method is. And so to 40K, you would look at the options that people have available to them, what chap- is chapter approved being used or not, uh, is is there a wide range, a wide, uh, 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 what's the term we're looking for? Like when a model is sold out, like for example, Centurions right now are sold out through Games Workshop and have been sold out for such a long time. Uh, so you might see less Centurions now than you would normally globally because there's, the supply on them is limited. Right, there's so there's so few centurions, and I guarantee you, people didn't have assault centurions just lined up because they were, they were never used. Now all of a sudden, they're always being used, uh, and so it, it's it, you use it. You look at things like that. You look at things, um, the options available, and then you analyze the meta based off of that. So that's the first one. That's the options analysis me- method. It's very simple. Um, okay, so for example, I would look at the uh, current meta, and I'd say. Um, oh, I expect lots of flyers still. So even though chapter approved was supposed to balance flyers, there's still a lot of room for flyers to participate in the game. So I need to look at my options for what happens when I face a skew list or face an iron hands list that's running flyers so that I have a game plan when I see those. Yes. And I just go down the list of things that I can conceive of and make sure I have an option that is valid against all of them so I have the best chance to win. Yes. Yeah, 100%. And I think that really separates people who do consistently well and folks who don't. Like, if you just want to go to an event and, and play 
you know, five games, four games, whatever amount of games and just have fun, that's completely fine. You're within your rights to do that. But a lot of the top players do consistently well because they take all this information into account. And it might seem like a lot of work to you if you just, you know, just play for fun once a month or whatever, you know, but at a competitive level, that's sort of like the start, the, the amount of work that it, it takes a lot of work to kind of keep up to date with everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, the, the second the second kind of um, thing I wanted to touch on, uh, once again, remember, there's nine of these. I'm only getting specific ones uh, is is theoretical underpinnings. And that's um, basically using theory to to uh, predict how players behave. Right. So theoretical underpinnings is is basically predicting player behavior. Right. And so th- this is it's to use the rock, paper, scissors analogy. This would be exactly what you look at um, when you look at uh, why players pick rock or paper or scissors, why they're psychologically doing that. But it's also more to it than that. Um, a perfect example of theoretical underpinnings would be to when you when you go to a game of 40K or when you go to a tournament, 40K tournament, and you look at what players perceive to be the strongest faction. So right now, if I were to guess, if the Las Vegas Open were to happen tomorrow, Space Marines and probably Tau would be the two players, the two factors that would affect player behavior. Players would want to deal with Space Marines. People, Players would negatively look at Space Marines because they see them as a threat if they're not a Space Marine player. If they are a Space Marine player, they might perceive other Space Marine players differently. Same thing with Tau. Tau players and Tau players definitely perceive other or non-Tau players definitely perceive Tau players as negatively um, just because of Tau being one of the most hated factions. But that would be another behavior that you have to focus on. Uh, and so you could use those to kind of skew the results in your favor. Um, I don't have a specific way to that, but I imagine a Tau player who brings a not a, a kind of unique Tau list that they, they do play really well might have an advantage uh, against someone who's expecting to see a Richard Siegler type, type, style Tau list, right? Uh, and because the idea is, is that because the player hates or because the player perceives Richard Siegler's Tau list as, as the enemy, they'll expect to see that list when they play your Tau list. And if your Tau list plays different than Richard Siegler's list, there might be an advantage there. Uh, if you're wondering specifically about Tau lists and you want a little bit more about that, Richard Siegler and Brian Poland, two really phenomenal Tau players, had a great episode of Chapter Tactics about three episodes ago. It's a really good episode. Um, they both talk about Tau specifically, but uh, that would be one thing, one example of theoretical underpinnings or player behavior, and using that to determine what's the best outcome for you. And that also ties in with player perception too, right? How players perceive the how players perceive the game and how are they perceive the the overall meta. Um, another example is, uh, computer programs. So, um, when Nigel Howard wrote these meta, this metagame analysis, and these metagame analysis steps, uh, he, there weren't a lot of computer programs out. So he was trying to use it to, to determine and predict, um, war games, uh, cricket games specifically, but computer analysis wasn't very common. So he predicted that computer programming for metagame analysis would become big. Like huge and and he was right 100 it's, it's one of the most common ways that players use you know determine metagames right and so computer programs are essentially uh a computer program metagame analysis is essentially gathering data 
looking at that data and determining results from that data. Uh, I, I won't get too much more into that. It's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, I mean, stop by 40K Stat Center for details. Yes. Uh, 40kstats.com, 40K Stat Center. Look at those stats. Plug in the data, plug in the numbers, plug in the win-loss results. Uh, figure out through that, through using your options analysis meta and theoretical underpinnings to determine what players are going to be playing at your tournament, whether it's the Las Vegas Open or your local event. And then go from there. Uh, plug in that data and look at what uh, you can look specifically um, mathematically what you factions have the best optimal chance of doing well or what units, right? And so unfortunately for Warmer 40k, we don't track enough data for for um, program meta-analysis to be amazing. But there is an example that I'd like to use of a magic pro player um, who played, who I was a really good friend with back in the day, like almost 20 years ago now uh, and he his name is eric and essentially what eric did was he used a computer program to determine every like basically predict every player's deck using just the numbers from the last like five uh gps and pro tours use those numbers to determine what the most optimal deck was the deck archetype was and then went to a grand prix grand prix san diego and won using just numbers he hadn't played magic in like five years but he was like hey pablo i've got a spreadsheet i want you to look at it blew i was like i have no idea what i'm looking at he's like yeah this deck will win i was like what is it he's like it's like a black aggro deck which is like not a common deck at all it's like some random deck and i was like you're you're crazy but no he he did really really well with it um so that's an example an extreme example of someone using just computer programs and data to just math out a tournament win it's not always going to happen he was also a phenomenal player who knew how to play the game like it wasn't just some random person who, who lucked out um but that is an example of someone using computer program metagame analysis to win a tournament or, or do really well at a tournament yeah i think as the game gets bigger you know that you know it's 40k stat center and you know it um the falcon is doing a fantastic job compiling all that information by hand uh, you know, basically, and it's that's the building blocks of this sort of meta analysis. As we get years in and whatnot, and more and more information on specific players and things like that, then that'll become even more useful. The tool, but in terms of as it is right now, it's even really useful to go, hey, what was uh, you know, um, what was uh, John Lennon playing the last GT or whatever? And you can look at his list and you know, kind of predict sort of where he's where he's been going with his list or what's well, Manny Chima running or you know things like that too. Speaking yeah. of analyzing the meta mathematically, it doesn't surprise me that Tao keep finishing the way that they do, and to address some of the pre pre podcast questions. It's definitely be partially because, first of all, there's some excellent players playing Tau. That helps, uh, just like Pablo was talking about with his friend. But not only that, a lot of the, the Space Marine meta, and Space Marines are the, the list to beat right now, revolves around stacking armor penetration modifiers. And as a result, anything that spams invulnerable saves that are reasonable at a reasonable cost is actually pretty all right. And Tau can do that. So they can take 50 shield drones with four up, five up. And yeah, Space Marines can pump out 
60 AP2 shots a turn that all hit on twos, rerolling ones. And that's okay. Into Tau drones, Tau drones will take that at a reasonable efficiency compared to other armies. Most other armies in the game would fold. So it allows Tau to be that black aggro deck in a meta of other decks that's coming out of nowhere like, hey, why is this doing so well? Well, because specifically to the most common matchup you expect at the top tables, it has a really reasonable way of competing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and uh, can you think of any other armies like in 40K's past that also have done that, Brandon? Huh. Um, <laughs> a few, but I think you have one in mind. Uh, I, I don't, actually. That's why I feel like Barkstar, maybe... Because because of the four up invuln, you just you just like it, it was such a simple army, but you played it so much more than I did, so I, I wouldn't even know if it compares. Yeah, that's forty k history at this point. The bark bark star was back in seventh. Everyone took psychic death stars because you could attach characters to units, so you would just attach all the best characters to the best unit and throw all the psychic buffs you could into a unit that would add up to about fifteen hundred points, and then you'd have a couple squads of tactical marines or some cultists holding objectives somewhere. And then I built a Death Star that didn't involve any psychers whatsoever. And it was kind of meta-breaking because it was just as good in, as whether I went first or second because it didn't need psychic powers to do anything. Um, so yeah, it was kind of meta-breaking and it was just good enough to take on an enemy Death Star um, and still deal with it, but give me enough points so that the rest of my army could go deal with the rest of their army and I'd win the game. Hmm. So yeah, that is kind of an off-meta thing where it's like, Death Stars are really common. Well, what if I build a Death Star that's just good enough, and then I have more other stuff? Oh, yeah. well, that's pretty good. Yeah, so 40k in 7th edition was, was was toxic, but also very interesting for at the highest level of play. Um, one day I'll have to do like a a breakdown of it. it's really cool but the final the final um method of metagame analysis is my favorite and that's the final breakdown of rationality and this has to deal with people's emotions irrationality preference changes and um essentially people making rational arguments out of irrational or basically making irrational arguments against their own common interests or, or against their both own self-interest what that means is is using the public's emotions and using the public's perceptions on things against them right and so if the public or if the players the meta thinks that space marines are bad right they're the enemy they're these evil which which arguably is the case right now um they're you know they're they're emotional they have strong emotions negative emotions against the space marine faction you can use that to your advantage um i don't know how you can use that to your advantage uh, that's just an example of metagame analysis but when you generally see a lot of strong emotions a lot of irrationality or breakdown in rationality in a meta in specific players um especially at the highest level you can definitely see uh an opportunity for metagame analysis there right and so uh one thing that uh I did see was the idea of when knights came out. Knights were this super controversial unit that that a lot of casual players hated playing against uh, because they were this big model uh, that you either could kill them or you didn't, which was the perception was that you either if you didn't bring a list to deal with knights, you lost, or if you did, you didn't. And so what uh, I tried to do and what a lot of players tried to capitalize on was they would bring these knight lists to these events 
and they would play against more casual players or players with less experience who would simply just give up because it felt so hard to beat knights because it felt like these insurmountable army and, and they let their emotions get the better of them and there were definitely a couple of games that i remember playing especially in early eighth edition where i played players who just felt like knights were were too good and they just gave up and i was like well all you have to do this is a knight army like, all you have to do is hold this objective my knight mathematically can't reach you so i lose but they didn't see that they they all they saw was their emotions so on a micro level, you can use that to your advantage. And on a macro level, if you feel like there's strong emotions towards one specific faction or one specific unit or one specific play style, you can totally use that to your advantage. And it's up to you to determine that too. So I could I could use all of these to break down the Las Vegas Open, and maybe I, maybe I will. But when we get closer to the LVO, uh, you know, I can use these methods to break down the the LVO meta game. But I'm letting you know specifically for your own personal metas too or for your own personal goals that's why this podcast is a competitive 40k podcast for everyone not just players looking to win the las vegas open uh and so that that one's my favorite uh is there any others that maybe i didn't mention um maybe methods or ways to analyze a meta that i didn't i felt like i got them all but um brandon and scar you're both very intelligent players and i might have missed something no. I think uh I think it's been you've been pretty thorough. Perfect. Okay. So um the final thing I want to talk about is uh I want to break down metagame analysis into three phases. Uh they're just going to be three simple steps that you can take just general things uh when looking at a meta to determine your best possible outcome. So the first is is an analysis of options, which we kind of already talked about. That's you you structure your options um, you identify issues that you have as they either pertain to your lit, your deck or your list or whatever. Um, you identify the stakeholders who who control these options, right? So like you listen to the podcasts, you look at what the top players are bringing, uh, you make an inventory of everything, uh, and then you uh, look at dependencies or you look at how... Um, how these uh kind of like depend on each other right well if uh if don Houston brings a chaos list uh he, you've got to look at all the people in Hanna's team that might bring chaos lists or or uh if jim vessel declares that chaos are dead right or or a specific player declares that this faction is dead you have to look at that you have to look at that to determine um to the best of your abilities what players can and can't use uh or won't will and won't use now brandon and scary uh when you're when you're looking at um and analyzing the options for meta what are what are some things that you've looked at specifically maybe in recent history um when you built a list for meta um so i'll the being in touch with the meta in general helps with that so the first thing i do is make sure i'm like up to date with like major gts and mm -hmm. and like big events that are like two days five rounds at least and i kind of see you know what sort of lists you're seeing in the top tens right um you know and because each there's like a bunch of different styles of marines lists and they're all a little bit different, but there's a couple of elements that, you know, you can see repeating themselves, whether it's Centurions or whether it's um, Iron Hands Flyers or whether it's um, Eliminators or whatnot, depending on what faction it is. Another thing that you have to do is sort of understand 
why specific, say, chapter tactics are taken or specific relics are taken or what stratagems an army will use specifically. And then once you sort of understand that, when I'm looking at a list myself, I kind of have to go, okay, I need to be able to, you know, take an objective or kill something. And then what do I need to kill? Is it going to be a knight? Sort of like that's, you, you kind of build it to a status. So, you know, an army, you should be able to kill a knight if you, because the knight's armies are like gatekeepers, right? So if you run into like a five knight army and you don't have a way to kill a knight, you're going to lose, you know what I mean? Um, so there's things like that that you have to keep in your checklist. You know, can I kill a knight? Yes, no. How long does it take me to kill a knight? And there's some really cool stuff out there. I use a lot of Math Hammer for that. There's a Math Hammer app that you can find on like the App Store. And you can just uh, punch in all the all the different numbers and it'll actually tell you how many shots it'll take and stuff like that. It's, it's a pretty handy tool that I use to go, okay, do I want to put in, you know, one Void Raven or two Void Ravens and, you know, things like that. Yeah, that's real. That's actually really good. Um, and that's a great segue into the second phase. But first, Brandon, um, is there any is there any specific uh, times in recent memory where you used you analyzed options to gear list for the meta? And I know you're kind of doing a little bit of that now because you you've kind of had to retool your astro Militarum list a bit. Oh yeah, I could go down the checklist, but basically I went over all of the problems that I expected to run into in the Marine list and then went down that checklist and tried to discover ways of dealing with each thing. So for example, um, Space Marines tend to be stealthy. So what parts of my army can I build around either being inside of 12 inches so I don't give them a cover save or ignoring cover or using melee? Um, so enhancing those kinds of options. I just went down the list of here's all the strengths of the armies that I expect to see, what options can I bring to the table that will deal with those strengths um, to add on top of what Skari said. And then the last thing is uh, it helps if you practice because then you start noticing trends in what your current build you thought it was going to do, but then you realize, oh, I'm only losing against builds that are doing this. So yeah. I need more tools that deal with that and I can back off a little bit on everything else. Yeah, and that's actually a perfect segue into the second phase. So after you're done analyzing your options, the second phase is scenario development, which is exactly what Skari and Brandon were talking about with Skari with his math hammer, um, with his math hammer thing, and then uh, Brandon with playing games. So, so scenario development is looking at the status quo, seeing how your and options that you analyze play out in the status quo and what the status quo is is basically how the game is right now what what without any changes at all this is what the average tournament would look like like right now space marines are considered perceived to be the top you know faction right now in 40kth edition uh that would be the status quo uh, anything that changes the status quo is something that you wouldn't necessarily look at uh yet the second one is uh looking at stakeholders so what stakeholders are essentially uh specific players or specific factions and the their stakes that they hold in the game right um do space marine players uh want to do well uh or or not do a look if you look at like random off meta lists those could be stakeholders basically your stakeholders are everyone who has a stake in the scenario right which is which is everything right those are your options uh, and then uh, developing them all is uh, finding compromises. So like 
uh, a good compromise would be space marines might go 50 50 against each other that's not the case maybe i haven't done the stats on that yet i haven't done the analysis here but that would be an idea of a compromise another compromise might be gene steer cult always lose to space marines so if there's a lot of gene steer cult in the status quo you can comfortably say compromise that yes space marines will in general beat the status quo or beat gene steer cults that that's uh maybe won't be accurate or maybe not accurate but that's not the point because you're trying to find compromises to develop your scenario uh, and the ultimate scenario you want to develop is you winning right so uh you you've you've determined your options you've developed the scenario to d give you what the best possible outcome might be uh, and then the final one is just simply scenario analysis putting it all together using your practice games your knowledge uh you you scenario development you develop different scenarios if i bring dark eldar how well will i do potentially in this scenario if i bring astromaltarum if i had an eldar uh, and you analyze each of those scenarios so uh an analysis of options you develop the options into specific scenarios uh, and then you analyze the scenarios that is basic metagame analysis 101 quick and dirty and that is how you roughly uh, analyze the metagame so gotten all of that out of the way i i think i think i want to talk about 40k now specifically uh, and the current metagame um so if you're if you're listening to this podcast in the future a year from now this would be where you turn the podcast off uh also thank you for listening in the future as well in 2020 um <laughs> because we're going to talk about the current 2019 8th edition season and how all of this stuff is relevant to that all right so we'll skip the LVO talk for January. However, both of you are in heavy development of lists. Uh, Skari just got a ton of new tools and tricks and stuff that he gets to play with. And if you want to see all that, he's got a great place. He talks about all that, which he'll plug later. Uh, and then Brandon is also in flux right now. Um, I think it's safe to say that, uh, Brandon, you've been a really good Astro Militarum player all year, but you you definitely need to change your list to deal with space marines and i think everyone does correct uh, yeah. so using all of these all the things we talked about now uh how are you all tackling the meta game and uh developing your lists to to try and win try and keep up the the good you know performances that you two have been putting up and whoever wants to take it can i'll let you go first brandon sure so there's been a couple themes. One of the themes is that uh, in the absence of terrain, it's very difficult to go into a shooting marine army. Um, almost impossible, even. So there's a few ways around that. One of them is to simply take units that are so freaking resilient that it doesn't even matter if there's no terrain. You'll still have models at the end of the game. So I'm trying to limit my list to models that I don't mind absorbing bullets. Um, number one. Number two, a greater focus on reserves, because if models aren't on the table, they can't be removed turn one. Um, so now that scions have been reduced in cost, <clears throat> for example, and they can start off the board, they're definitely looking more attractive. <clears throat> and um, also units that can hide and still participate in the game. So especially indirect fire, because also magic boxes exist, and I expect that 
white scar centurions in magic boxes is going to be a problem for everyone uh, going forward. So indirect fire being able to participate in the game, great. Um, or tower and tanks that can move, shoot, move, great. Um, so those are the focuses. Um, make sure that you can go second on an empty table and still participate in the game. Uh, make sure that the units that start on the board are as resilient as possible. Um, and make sure that if you are reserving things, um, that when they do arrive, they make a difference. So they hit really hard and preferably uh, survive after landing, but that's not always possible. Um, and then all of the, the options analysis in terms of uh, do I have options for ignoring cover? Um, if I face this specific unit, what is my plan? Um, and just going down the list and making sure I check all the boxes. So it's going to be interesting. I've been doing a lot of playtesting. I've got some good ideas. Um, but I think I'm about 80% of the way to a list that'll be good for LVO. We'll see. Yeah, you've got a very interesting um, sort of dynamic there. Me personally, um, I actually recently made a little quick video. I was kind of trying to think of a, of a new uh, way of uh, of building a list. And... One of the things that helps me is sort of a looking at my collection. I don't really like to do too much work before practicing for a big event. And I like to make myself better by using l units that I have access to instead of sort of forcing myself to use units that uh, might, you know, I might uh, not necessarily want to use. However, Brandon picked on a couple of key things. Number one, you have to be able to kill Marines and cover. Um, number two, you know, if you don't have access to stuff that, uh, shoots or kills things out of line of sight you need to be able to um, you need to be able to clear uh, buildings so whether or not you are um, um, uh, like shooting them out of the building or in in some cases you have to uh, just um, uh, go in and clear it with like close combat you know and that's and that's just as important as well so using that into account you might look at either characters that can do that or um or even uh units like you know some like for example incubi or grotesques or whatnot and it, as for terrain yeah you need to be able to either hide or have a everything has been very very brutal and what i mean by that is everything in the game right now has like this ability to just wipe you out and like with without even trying almost so you have to be able to either survive that amount of firepower or play a list that doesn't care about losing you know a bunch of their stuff aka you know doing like an msu style list or something where no matter what the opponent kills they're always going to be um uh they're always going to be over killing things and that's just as important sometimes Anything you yeah. wanted to add, Pablo? Did we lose Pablo? All sorry, sorry, I'm, sorry. I'm, I was I muted myself. Oh, <laughs> a little okay. silly. So, so, uh, Scary, I know you have to leave soon. I he's leaving. Um, so, why don't you? I have a question for you, and then why don't you go ahead and plug yourself, and then we'll move to the uh, when you leave, we'll move to the final stage of the of the podcast. The so the conclusion. So, in regards to 
looking at what other players are bringing in trends is there anything you're seeing other than obviously everyone's everyone's revolving around space marines um but is there anything else you're looking at in terms of uh, emotionals irrationalities uh maybe specific underpinnings or things player behaviors that you want to look at that you maybe want to seek or take advantage of uh you mean in terms of like player psychology or whatnot Mm -hmm. yeah yeah for for Um, building your list or playing well in terms of me something that i always like to do is i like to do something that i used to do when i back in fourth edition i played my black templars a lot and one of the things that i did was i always ran a land raider crusader and back in fourth edition taking a land raider crusader wasn't exactly the optimal choice let's say simply because it was terrible and one last cannon shot could like completely annihilate your 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 big expensive land raider um but what i would do is i'd put it on the table and my philosophy was i'm going to let my opponent do uh worry about it i'm not going to worry about whether or not my opponent can worry about my land raider I was like, I'm just going to put it on the table and have my opponent worry about it. I think that's a philosophy that has kind of kept with me in the game. Whenever I build a list or I add things in, sometimes they might not um, make a lot of sense. They work well in game. It's about me using them properly. But at the end of the day, I want to make sure that it's my opponent that's going to look at my list and worry about it instead of me sort of worrying about how I'm going to be able to use my list. Like, I'm just going to put my list on the table, and I'm going to make my opponent make choices that will impact the game. And at the end of the day, you know, it'll come down to who made the best choices and, you know, who uh, who kind of played the game better in that sense. Okay. Uh, and Ascari, where where can they find more from you and that, that lovely gentleman's voice? Well, you can always head on over to the Patreon page at Scardcast on Patreon. There you can access everything from the YouTube, Instagram, all that good stuff. Um, yeah, that's it. I pretty much do everything through there. Or Twitch. We do a daily live Twitch stream, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, where I get to uh, hang out with uh, all you guys and, and really just enjoy life. It's really fun. Mm-hmm. He's also super active, by the way. If you if you're considering supporting a Patreon, Scary does a really really great job of interacting with his patrons and interacting with his community that they they built up that I'm actually a part of. So I, I should say you know our community, um, but does a great job interacting with people. So if you if you really want to you know pick Scary's brain, get more information from him, highly recommend it. He's always talking to people always open to helping people out and he's also got a coaching thing as well too so seriously recommend him why thank you pablo and uh well yeah everyone can always drop me a line you, there's no paywall to talk to me so um <laughs> that's true you can always uh, you can always just message me on facebook or whatever but uh yeah no that's it's it's literally what i do for a living so you know i i enjoy what i do all right. Thanks, Scary. Thanks for so much for coming on, man. You have a good one. Yeah, thanks a lot, Brandon. Thanks a lot, Pablo. You guys are awesome. And uh, hashtag just put paint on it. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. All right, Brandon. Same question. So is there any irrationalities, any emotions, any uh, underpinnings, things that you're looking at to write your list or maybe to take advantage of uh, uh, metagame currently, or are you saving all that good stuff for the Las Vegas Open? Um, 
I'm not really good when it comes to perceiving emotions in general, hence the comparison to robots. <laughs> that, but I will fair. say that I do try and build a list that I'm very comfortable playing emotionally in a way that playing the list correctly feels emotionally correct to me. So I don't want to build a list that has a play style that goes against what I'd like to be doing on the table emotionally, if that makes sense. So No, it makes perfect sense. If you're an aggressive player, maybe you want to build a melee army. And if you're a defensive player, maybe you don't want to build an all-melee army. Yeah, and if if the in terms of metagame analysis, if you're a cautious player in general, uh, you you do you will do better in most metagames because cautious play and and safe play does lead to more results and more wins and that's almost across the board from what i've seen in every competitive game i've ever played the the younger people the younger players are always more aggressive uh and tend to either win big or lose more often than players who are older or more experienced who just go with the tried and true boring conservative way to play which is which is a good way to play it's a, it's a good way to win uh, so if you're if you're looking at a metagame and you there's a lot of younger players and they're playing a lot of aggressive close combat armies uh in 40k if that's what that means to you uh then you know run something run something a little more defensive or a lot more defensive uh and see how, how see how your results vary uh vice versa if you're playing in a tournament a local scene uh, where a lot of players play a lot of really defensive maybe they're horde armies uh, or maybe they have a lot of really big units and, and everyone plays really slow and 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 methodical uh maybe shake it up maybe get right in their face be super aggressive make them uncomfortable uh make them play a game that they're not used to playing uh and you might see some results there too uh and then that obviously translates to to all metas you know local international all that so great all right that's it brandon uh we're, we're into the final the final last stretch of the episode uh and so at the conclusion of every episode i like to open it up to the patrons to ask questions and and have us answer them uh on live and they ask them via the facebook patreon club and that's if you want to join that you all have to do is sign up to be a patron it's only a one-time fee and you get into that group for life uh so you don't have to keep being a patron to be in the group and that's uh patreon.com slash chapter tactics and that's just a quick five dollars a month gets you access to a great community a discord channel and then you get to ask questions at the end of every episode so uh this episode uh first question is um uh nathaniel henning wants to know uh, if we have definitions for things like tri-pointing and other strategic things, um, if we can add those to this episode, uh, Nathaniel, sorry. Um, I think, Brandon, I think a uh, basic terminology episode might be great for for players. Um, I think that's something, an episode we can do in the future. Yeah, and I think you... that if um, you're interested in tri-pointing specifically, I think there are some good tutorials out there that the likes of Nick Nanavati have already made that show you exactly what tri-pointing is and how to pull it off. Um, but if we wanted to go over individual tactics, I think that's a great episode on its own. Yeah. All right. Uh, um, a jargon bingo card we'd have to create with that with that episode. Um, but uh, Paul wants to know, with the recent Tau top placings, how much of it is the generals knowing their army inside it out and the Space Marine players just starting out versus Tau being actually that good versus Space Marines? I can answer that one. Uh, sure. I think it's little column a little column b but i would say that without column b 
we would not be seeing Tau finish events in first place. So Tau are very uniquely situated because of the way they play to be able to deal with Space Marines. First of all, they have easy access to Ignore's cover through marker lights. Second, shield drones absorb lots of AP high weapons very easily. And three, Tau put out a lot of shots. So generally, they can deal with the pieces of the Marine Army that put out a lot of shots and then absorb all the high-strength shots on the drones and then win the game. So Tau have a solid game plan into Marines, and they also have mobility, which is what these winning lists have been doing, is if the Space Marine player deploys super defensively, they declare a Monska, and they all advance, get in a line of sight, and blow the Marines away anyway. So I think that Tau are in a great position to deal with Space Marines, and I think that um, Brian and Richard are also excellent players. So that's what set them apart. Yeah, I agree. Well, I can set any of that better myself. Uh, so uh, patron Tim wants to know, what are the most basic things to look for when trying to understand the current meta? Uh, simple number of wins, other statistics that point towards anything powerful. Um, so what are, uh, Brandon, what are some basic things that you look to when you're un- trying to understand the current meta? Um, I tend to be more technically focused, but if you're doing broad strokes, I would look at TWIP, which was the stat center term for times and winning position. And basically that means... Um, how many times this army went 4-0 and at a 5-game event or 5-0 and at a 6-game event um, so that it could have won the whole thing but didn't. And I think that if you look at that number, even if the list didn't win the whole event, if it was in a quote-unquote winning position, it could have won, then I still think that's a list worth looking at. So, And even more so than lists that necessarily end up in the top 10. So for example, the second place list might not have been in a winning position in the penultimate round um, compared to like the fifth place list. So I think that's a good place to start, number one. Um, Number two, percent win rate is also a good guide. Um, It's nice for averaging, but it also tends to be skewed. It's almost a snowball effect. So if a particular faction is very good, um, the players who have the money and time will invest in that faction so it will start attracting more better players and also drive the win rate up so it tends to be a snowball effect of maybe if everyone was even this would be a 60 percent win but now it's a 65 percent win or something like that but ultimately it tends to skew that that t-whip into higher and higher numbers as well so you might have the faction that has a 60 percent win rate when everyone else has a 50 percent win rate has uh, much higher times and winning position than every other faction. Those are the factions to look out for and the list to look out for um, when you're looking at what's really powerful. Yeah, it, and um, one, I, I don't want to add much on it, basically everything I would have said as well. However, I would like to add this one thing, and that there's a bit of a pitfall um, that I myself always personally fell into, and that's I always liked to look at the usage percentage. So how how much... Um, how likely you were to run into Space Marines or run into Imperial Knights or Imperium, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason why this is a pitfall is it's it's actually good statistic to know, but not for Warhammer 40k and especially not for the state the game is in right now. The game is so diverse that if you look at the percentage, you still have a ch- you're going to play a Space Marine player, but you're also going to play a like one in like 12 chance, but you're guaranteed statistically to play one of like 12 factions and when you go to an event like the las vegas open or a real international event 
one of those random 12 factions are, are there are going to be a player who plays that faction really well it's going to be like a necron player or a pure tyranids player or whatever right it, you know it's going to be some weird off-brand thing you're not going to see that's actually very common in 40k tournaments when compared to other things uh, like magic tournaments standard tournaments in magic are not diverse at all often sometimes a diverse the, the diverse metagame will happen um, however in 40k the metagame is so diverse that i've just stopped looking at usage percentages um when i'm building my list and i just i try to gear towards usage percentages uh or t-whip which which is actually basically usage percentages but at the highest level right so you get to look at day two what lists and factions are most likely to go three and oh or four and oh right so it's really good but yeah um uh, Kelsey wants to know, patron Kelsey wants to know, how much do you take the meta into consideration when constructing your list? Do you go as far as making a list that only beats the meta but loses to rogue armies? Do you build a list that beats space marines but loses to knights? Um, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we kind of talked about the concept of gatekeeper armies, <laughs> and you absolutely need to be able to beat gatekeeper armies. So in the example of do you build a list that beats SM but loses to knights? No. Knights are a gatekeeper army. They're not going to win the event, but you still need to plan for them existing because good people, good players like Junior Flehi are still taking knights, for example. And um, if you cannot DPS check remove one knight in a turn, maybe your list isn't built properly. Um, or maybe you don't need to delete a knight in a turn because you have some other plan to deal with them where it's like, look, my list just doesn't take very much damage from knights. I'll be totally fine not killing one a turn. Whatever it is, those other armies that you're talking about, they're gatekeeper armies, and you shouldn't build lists that lose to gatekeeper armies in general. So really the only thing that you wouldn't want to plan around are lists that are so oddball that they have, let's say, a, a 30% win rate against the meta in general, but you will lose to every time. So for example... The list that I would lose to might have 18 grotesques in it with 4-plus invuls. That's really hard for my list to deal with. I have a bunch of strength 3 firepower. They're all toughness 6. And then they take the relic of I fight last when I touch them. So they just delete whatever I touch in melee. That list is really hard into my list. But am I going to see it on the table? No, because Thunderfire cannons exist. Flyers exist. And that lists terrible into those matchups that are really common, so I just don't plan for it. Yeah, um, I, I like to I like to look at the meta in terms of um, when constructing lists. I like to look at the meta in terms of interaction. Uh, basically, if I really want to do well, I build a list that has no inter that that has no interaction uh, matchups. So basically, what that means is if I built a list that only had bolters. And it wouldn't be able to interact with like a knights list, for example. I would not want to run that list. I w I, I hate non interaction, so I, I try to limit it as much as possible um, by looking for lists that interact with as many different things as possible. Um, so that's generally how I look at the meta. If I'm actually trying, I have run lists. I've actually run recently lists that uh, definitely don't. They do poorly against vehicles, for instance. Uh, with these weird space marine lists, um, but that was very intentional. That was a I, because I very specifically wanted to run this style of list, and I was actually targeting a specific aspect of the meta that I thought would be more prevalent, but it wasn't. Also, it was a, I was getting ready for a team tournament where I needed that kind of skewer list. So, all right, uh, 
Kelsey, when defining a, uh, one final question, Kelsey, when defining a meta, do you use armies to define it, or what the army does to define it? So, do you use space marines, or do you use gunline, alpha strike, space marines, etc.? That's a really good question. We can we can break that down. Um, let's see here. How best to explain this? I guess I'll try to answer it first sure. while you collect your thoughts. So w when I'm defining a meta, I always use it by faction. Uh, but that's because I, I have to speak in broad generalist terms because I, I'm trying to communicate to my listeners what what the, these ideas and concepts are. So it, it's and this is something that that's um that I like to call like the podcaster curse or the PD pop curse. And it's essentially when I'm talking to the listeners, I, I love you all. You're all great. Uh, but I do need to pretend like I'm speaking to a wide variety of people with a wide knowledge of the game. Uh, and sometimes, often, what this comes out that comes down to is I can sound like maybe I'm I don't know what I'm talking about, or or maybe I'm being too generalist. I'm being not specific enough, and that's because there there's players with different experiences or different uh, you know goals for the game. Uh, this is in general we're here for competitive 40k, but Whereas you've got players like Brandon who are looking to win the Las Vegas Open, and then you've got other players who just simply want to go four and two or three and three, and they think that's a win, right? And so when I talk about when I'm defining meds and when I talk about armies, I like to use generalist terms like factions. But the by far the most proper way to do it, in my opinion, is to talk about army concepts: uh, gunline armies, alpha strike armies, space marine white scars, white scar. 18th centurion list, 15th centurion list, and that's actually why I like people who come up with weird names like Bark Bark Star, right? It, it's it's a it's a weird name, sure, but it's a very specific, clear term that defines what you're running into. If I say I'm played a Bark Bark Star, Brandon knows exactly what kind of list I played against. I could go into Eighth Velvio next month and be like, Brandon, I played a Bark Bark Star. He would be like, What? You played a Bark Star in Eighth Edition? But he would know what I was talking about, it, you know. It so it, I like those clear avenues of communication because uh, when we define those terms, it's more access. Those terms are more accessible to a wide variety of players, right? But in general, I do use factions when I know it's not the right way to talk. I should talk about, uh, you know, specific. Should go into specifics. But when I say things like Barkstar, when I say things like like trip centurion white scars or like white hands which is iron hands and white scars combined it might not resonate with other with other listeners and uh, it's just um it's just a conscious decision i make anyways that was so, a long answer brandon go ahead the only thing i can add to that is you've got your three levels right you got your army you have your build and then you have units um i try to start with units so i'll be like okay my opponent has a thunderfire cannon how do i deal with it Okay, my opponent has Eliminators. How do I deal with it? Okay, my opponent has a character Dreadnought. How do I deal with it? Um, okay, my opponent can outshoot me. How do I play? Oh, my opponent will outpunch me. How do I play? Um, and especially in the context of, let's say, Space Marines. Space Marines that outshoot me. Space Marines that outshoot me and get cover saves. How do I deal with that specifically? They also have these units. Okay, what are my tools there? 
okay, Space Marines, Space Marines that have cover saves, Space Marines that outpunch me. How do I play around that? What tools do I need in order to win? And you start breaking it down, one, two, three, by faction, strategy that they're beating you at, followed by specific units and how you deal with them. So make sure that you have a game plan for all of those different combinations, almost like a, a tree of faction, game plan, unit. That's that's a very holistic, conclusive, I, I guess, way to look at it. Uh, you know, just all the options, and that that's actually really great. All right. And that is it. That is the last Facebook question. Uh, thank you all so much for posting those questions in Patreon. I appreciate all of my patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on to patreon.com slash chapter tactics. Also, go to frontlinegaming.org. Listen to the Frontline Gaming Network where we have podcasts called The Art of War. We have the uh, 40K Stat Center. We have signals from the front line. Uh, all, all in the finest hour. All the podcasts. All the content. As well as our terrain and Games Workshop products and secondhand shop items that we sell. All right, Brandon, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute blast having you. I think you were a really great co-host for this specific episode. Thank you. And as always, you're the best listeners in the world, and have a good one. Good night, everyone.